Hello, and welcome to ARBcast, Water Island Capital's podcast series, where we strive to provide investors with concise and timely insights into the world of event-driven investing. I'm your host, Jordan Hurl, and joining us today is Greg Laprete, Portfolio Manager of the Water Island Credit Opportunities Fund, ticker ACFIX. And today we'll touch on the rocky start to the year for fixed income markets, where markets could go from here, and how Greg intends to navigate choppy waters moving forward. Greg, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jordan. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, it goes without saying the first half of 2022 was difficult for most investors. There were a few places to hide with risk assets down pretty much across the board. Do you mind sharing some of your observations today, what you're seeing, and perhaps juxtapose that with what you were thinking just six months ago? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a difficult first six months of the year. Uh, If you recall, at the end of 2021, everybody was already talking about higher rates, inflation, um, a lot of that due to the pandemic. But when we got into the first part of the year, um, we started to get some inflation prints that appeared, it appeared to show that inflation was in fact sticky uh, rather than just uh, transient. And so the market really felt that the Fed was behind the curve and the Fed had to act a little bit more aggressively, certainly than people people had initially expected or wanted them to. And then really exacerbating everything further was the Russian and Ukraine situation, um, which led to markets selling off, uh, led to higher fuel energy prices around the globe, and that really impact, impacted things a lot. So essentially what had happened there was that equities um, continued their sell-off, which really began in the fourth quarter, particularly in technology. But then as rates were going higher, a lot of the longer duration products, investment-grade credit, uh, mortgage-backed, um, even high yield, which is more of a, I guess, a risk-on and a spread product, those markets sold off really aggressively, particularly in the second quarter. So with spreads wider, it also seemed like everybody was running for the exits. And, and I don't know if this is, a, this is a situation that has been more extreme in the past few years because of the social media or maybe because of the number of electronic trading platforms, whether it's ETFs or other risk parity types of funds um, where they just get aggressive and then they tend to be more momentum driven. But as soon as something starts trading down and, and picking up speed on the way down or on the way up, it seems everyone tries to follow. And so we had a classic situation here, particularly in the second quarter, where everybody was trying to get off the ship at once. And we had some pretty dramatic uh, drawdowns during, during that quarter. So that really shaped, I think, everybody's thinking, particularly with with risk. Uh, People were definitely getting nervous. They started to think about and talk about this leading to a recession, um, that the Fed would would perhaps have to tighten even more in order to induce some type of recession to slow down inflation. So really, we we left the the second quarter, the first half of the year, with pretty negative sentiment in the market. And that's really where we are today. Thanks, Greg. So with that in mind, and also considering we've had somewhat of a relief rally here in July so far, what are some of the possible outcomes you see playing out through the end of the year? And how do you envision them impacting the fixed income markets? Great question. And then everybody's asking that question. I mean, I think the, the first thing that we're, we're talking about is with respect to inflation. And that's, that's dominating everyone's conversations. And it really has to do, that's going to drive rates. It's going to drive Fed policy. It's going to drive our investment decisions. So I think that the first thing to think about is, is where are rates going? Um, where is inflation going? So the first outcome is that inflation 
continues, it does not abate. And in that case, the Fed is going to have to continue to get more aggressive. And if we follow that scenario through, depending on how aggressive the Fed is um, and how much rates go up, I mean, it's more than likely to lead to some type of recession in the future. And so you really have a situation where not only you're getting impacted on your higher quality rate sensitive types of names, but in a recession scenario, certainly your risk products, whether it be equities or high yield, those are going to get hit hard. So that that's that's a pretty pretty bearish scenario. The next next thing I think we're facing is, you know, is the Fed doing enough? Is inflation going to be be tamed? And right here, we're at the beginning of the second half of the year. It feels like we have a little bit of a risk rally here. I think that partially is because we've had some rate stabilization. Mark, I think in general, thinks the Fed is at least telegraphing that they want to, they definitely stamped, uh, stamped their authority on inflation in the sense that they want to keep it under control. They realize how big of a problem it is. They've had buy-in from the Biden administration. So I think those are good things uh, out there. And so the market, it feels like the market has picked up on this. Uh, we have rate stabilization currently. The 10-year is hovering somewhere around 3%. The five-year is a little bit below that. Um, inflation expectations by some of our measurements uh, seem to be coming down, um, which, is, which is a positive. And so we've seen a little bit of a re- relief rally. That right now is, you know, we'll call that the base case. You know, the bear case is the one I talked about previously. The last case, I mean, a more bull case. I mean, I think it's more continuation where inflation miraculously comes in. The Russian-Ukraine crisis is resolved and and everybody is happy and and maybe markets rally from here. So I don't know that we're factoring that one in, but I think the the prior two certainly. Um, Right now, with rates stabilizing, that's, that's good for our markets, particularly for corporations. You know, we do look at corporate credit. So it is a window that's opening up where we could see a lot of companies coming to it to refinance. Um, it does make corporate planning um, a lot easier in, in that sense. Uh, it also for, for homeowners, I mean, people looking at mortgages and the like, I think it's, it's a positive for them because they can see some stability. They don't feel so rushed to, to get their, their mortgage uh, locked in like maybe they did over the, the prior couple of months that they needed to. Um, so those are really the things that, I, that I'm looking at. I, I'd say myself and probably the firm, you know, we tend to be much more conservative. Um, so I think we really have to prepare for both scenarios, in particular the, the recession scenario, because I think that's the more adverse of the two. So I think all of our thinking is going to be looking at those two scenarios and uh, making sure that we're protected uh, on the downside there. Tricky thing to do, but it's something that we're, we're keeping very, uh, very close to us in, in, our, in our thoughts and how we how we plan the remainder of this year for, for all of our funds. Walking through those scenarios is helpful, Greg. Now, in previous ARBCAST episodes, you've detailed your catalyst-driven credit approach and highlighted how primarily investing in near-term idiosyncratic events has helped mitigate credit and interest rate risk. As we look at year-to-date performance as of July 15th, the fund is only down 4.71%, while the Bloomberg Ag and ICE B of A high yield indices are down 9.80% and 12.43% respectively. So on a relative basis, the fund has held up rather well, but for our listeners' sake, can you share what hasn't worked as well as expected this year and what have been some of the biggest challenges for you? Yeah, good question. Really the most difficult situation that we faced this year, they were in the softer catalyst events where the underlying companies were really being questioned about their ability to grow or they were faced with revenue challenges that were brought about by supply chain issues. So the market was really intolerant of any shortfall 
And if there was a lack of dedicated buyers for this type of name, then bonds would gap from call it par levels to distress levels in, in a matter of days. So it was, it was to me, um, a scenario that we really have not seen in a number of years. And I think it, the last time that we saw this was during COVID when things gapped down so dramatically, but here it was an idiosyncratic event. And so what we had to do in these situations, and, and we did not have many of them at all, but of the ones that we did have, we had to assess and say, okay, are these fears real? Um, if we go into a recession, is this company going to be able to get the financing it needs to, to push out its, its maturity wall? Um, so we took action on a lot of these names, whether it be hedging or exiting the positions. So those are the, really the most, most challenging types of names. And, and that's, uh, to some degree, it's, it's shaping our thinking going forward. So that's, that's really what, what hasn't worked this year. Thanks, Greg. Given some of the scenarios you mentioned earlier and the potential volatility we could experience during the second half of the year, how do you plan on managing the portfolio moving forward? Do you plan on adjusting the playbook? So the playbook for the second half of the year, it's not going to materially change, but I think the way that we approach every position um, will be with a much more conservative bent. And, and what I mean by that is uh, looking at hedges uh, around that position, thinking about downsides in particular. You know, what if we have that recession scenario? Is our downside gonna be 20% lower than what we think it is? So that's gonna really impact our position sizing. It's going to impact the way that we're hedging each individual position, perhaps our, our overlays on the portfolio with hedges. But most importantly is that we are gonna continue to focus with our, our catalyst driven approach and the, the one thing I will, I will say, and we've done it over the course of the, of the first and second quarters, is we've been building the number of hard catalysts in the portfolio. And on the soft catalyst side, we're now putting against those much, much heavier hedges. And these hedges are designed so that if, if the markets go in the opposite direction, we can still be okay um, using the options market and so forth. But we're looking at the downside scenario also with respect to, to recessions in those soft catalysts. With the hard catalyst names, and these are things like mergers, acquisitions, you know, spinoffs, things that have a definitive timeline or governed by a merger agreement or some other type of agreement. Those are the names that we, we build up from about a quarter of the portfolio in early Q1 to half of the portfolio at the end of the, the first half. And so by building those hard catalysts in the portfolio, that's really good going forward. Uh, one is that these have a high probability of being completed, particularly if the market is trading down or if it's trading up. And the second part is because of the volatility that we've had, you know, these call it the merger names in the portfolio are trading at much, much wider spreads. And so we're able to capture those types of things uh, in the portfolio. And you know, the, the last part is, and I think the other part that we're, we're, we're looking at pretty closely is we've been moving up the capital structure in the portfolio. And what I mean by that is, is Typically, a high-yield bond that we may buy that's, let's say, the target company is subject to a merger, we may buy their, the high-yield bonds because we think that they're going to be redeemed. Um, often, when you have a recessionary market or a rough market, the downside in that increases during your holding period, and so they will uh, undergo some type of downside revision during your holding period. The deal may, in fact, close, and, and it should go back up to par, whatever your, your redemption price is, but you do have some more downside with those names. So with the higher spreads in the market we've been able to to move into the bank loan market where a company uh, let's call it a target company will have their debt refinanced if the merger is completed 
but now we own something that's really top of the capital structure. It's a floating rate security, higher credit rating, all those things really help to mitigate downside on the position. So that's, that's a place that we've been increasing our allocation to based on the specific deal. So those are really, you know, you can call it a playbook, but it's really a combination of things that, that give us downside protection and certainly allow us to capture the wider spreads that are in the market. And so that in the second half of the year, uh, hopefully we can, we can expect less, less downside in the portfolio, but we can also capture a fair amount of that upside that's been given to us and other investors due to the volatility in the market. Thanks, Greg. I'm sure investors appreciate hearing you're focusing on mitigating the downside as you find attractive opportunities and wider spreads. You know, that also highlights a benefit of your catalyst-driven strategy, that being you have a number of different tools at your disposal. You just mentioned merger arbitrage and looking at adding more of those names to your book. I guess, can you share with listeners what other tools, if any, do you anticipate using more in this market and which will be kept in the toolbox, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so in, in the fund, we do have the ability to implement long, short strategies. And so, as you mentioned, merger arbitrage is definitely one of them. Um, and and that, that really points to the harder catalyst events that we're putting into the portfolio. So we will be using what we would call merger arb strategy, where we buy the target company's debt. In some cases, we may short equity against that to hedge the position, might buy put options, um, whatever that might be. But we also depending on the situation, can employ a convert arb opportunity where we're effectively long the convertible and we're short the underlying common to hedge out the equity risk. And then for some of our, we'll call it our yield to call positions where we expect the company to be redeeming debt before the maturity date, there we're going to use something that we would call capital structure arbitrage. Uh, in this case, you could think of it as a long position in credit with some type of, of equity hedge, whether again, put option, short stock versus a call option, um, that sort of thing. So. We're really using all of these currently, and I think that allows us to take advantage of, of any types of gaps in the market. The hedges not only help us on the downside when the markets are soft, um, but it does give us a, a trading opportunity. Um, and if things rally, then we can reset those shorts uh, in the portfolio. Um, so all these tools really help us. And I think I'd be a lot more nervous if we were just a long-only fund and I had to just buy a bond and hope that it was going to have a straight line to maturity or the call date. But we may not be in that, uh, have that luxury during the second half. And so using the merger ARB strategy, using the convert ARB, really in busted names, names that are trading on close to their bond floor or in what we call high convexity names. That means they're trading close to their bond floor and they have kind of an out of the money call option in them. Then those are, those are names that we would also look at, you know, again, using a convert ARB strategy. And again, with the yield to call names, we're really using that cap structure type of strategy. That's interesting. So briefly moving on to rates, it seems the latest expectations are for continued Fed hikes through 2023. Considering you have a shorter duration portfolio and the return potential for spread-based strategies like merger arbitrage is typically inclusive of short-term rates, is it fair to anticipate the return potential, at least for those names, would be better with each additional hike? Definitely. Um, we saw that in the first half. I mean, we had, if you go back a year ago and, and a, a typical merger arb name, we might be looking to make 5% on that name, uh, annualized return of 5%. So, so we buy a, we buy the bond of a target company, we clip coupon, we get redeemed, say, six months after. You know, on a good name, we might get 5%. 
really in the last month, we've been putting on names that are now low double digits. So what's nice about this strategy is that it's a very short, short duration portfolio, particularly the merger arb types of names. And as those roll off, we're able to put that cash into these new deals that are not at 5% spreads, but are now at low double digit spreads. So I think that's, what's nice about uh, this type of portfolio is there's a natural role that goes on. We don't have to go into the market and sell positions. It's more the deal closes, uh, the bonds are redeemed and we walk in on a Monday morning and basically we have cash in our account and the company has redeemed the bonds and then we can go put that to work. So that's been a nice, uh, it's really been a, a luxury, um, something that I really like about Merger Arb as a strategy. And we're going to continue to use that going forward with the other types of names. You know, those could be a little bit longer dated. Um, but as I said before, we're using those hedges to try to insulate the principal risk there. Um, and that's going to allow us to clip coupon to generate income for, for the fund, for investors without that, that, uh, the negative downside there that I think just a long only fund would, would, uh, experience. Thank you. So Greg, there's one more thing I'd like to ask you. Everyone's been hearing a lot about the saga between Twitter and Elon Musk. It seems like there's a new headline just about every day now. Is this a situation you've been following? And if so, are there ideas that you've been able to consider for your portfolio? Yes, it is a deal. We are following very closely and it's, I guess we could call it the, the, the world's largest soap opera right now, uh, at least largest corporate soap opera. Um, you know, it, it, forgetting about what we do for a living here, but I mean, it's, it's entertaining to just watch this, uh, to watch the big personalities and so forth. And, uh, the stakes are, are, are growing, but this is our business. It's, it's a merger deal. There's been a lot of, we'll call it color around the situation. A lot of tweets, a lot of volatility, but I mean, our basic thoughts are that the, the merger contract between Twitter and Elon Musk is very tight. Musk really has to prove that the bots issue is a material adverse effect. Uh, we think that the financing for the transaction is already locked in by Morgan Stanley. And as, as you may know, the Twitter has recently filed suit in Delaware with the Delaware Chancery Court. And the, the judge that's been assigned in this case had made a landmark decision a few days ago of forcing the buyer to complete uh, a deal. So we think we have some precedent here with that judge. So overall, yeah, very entertaining. Um, those are kind of our general thoughts about uh, about the situation. And it's certainly going to continue in the second half of the year. But the volatility really from either Musk's tweets or lawsuits, whatever it might be, um, it's moved the company's bond and stock prices um, really dramatically during the second quarter. And it's probably going to do the same going forward. And what's nice about this situation, really, from, from my perspective as a credit investor or, or cap structure investor, is that these moves have led to really a mix of trades in the credit portfolio, which revolve around the completion of the deal. So Twitter does have, obviously it's equity, um, but they also have high yield bonds and they also have converts. And so we've been able to invest across the capital structure uh, where we can invest in a really significant way where we can uh, reduce a lot of the downside risk with respect to a deal break, but also capitalize if, if this deal goes through. So pretty, pretty exciting uh, deal to look at and to follow. And I'm happy that we can invest across the capital structure because I wouldn't want to just make a binary bet on the deal goes through or doesn't go through. Um, so here, at least we have some, some, uh, some tools at, at our disposal to invest in this way uh, with, with respect to the Twitter deal. 
Thank you. I'm sure we'll be getting plenty of updates on the situation, not just from yourself, but all of financial media. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the color and insight you gave us. Thanks, Jordan. It was good to be here and good chatting with you. Well, we've been speaking with Greg Laprete, Portfolio Manager of the Water Island Credit Opportunities Fund, ticker ACFIX. For those listening who may not be familiar with Water Island Capital, we are an asset management firm with a proven 20-year track record and event-driven strategies across public mutual funds, private investment vehicles, and ETFs, allowing clients to choose the best format for their exposure. For more information on our funds, please visit our website, arbitragefunds.com, or call our resource desk at 800-560-8210. Thank you for joining us.